Hello, Electorette listeners. This is Jen Taylor Skinner, the host and creator of The Electorette. I just want to take a moment to congratulate you because you are about to enjoy another episode of The Electorette, featuring an interview with yet another brilliant woman. And if you're enjoying The Electorate and you want to support the women whose work we elevate, the activists, the writers, the the women who dedicate their lives and careers to bring us great literature and who make us think and they bring about change in the world, if you want to support those women, just please take a moment and pause this episode and subscribe. When you subscribe to The Electorate, it's the best way to help us bring you more interviews like the one you're about to enjoy. And after you hit subscribe, please hurry back and hit play again, because I don't want you to miss a second of this episode. Trust me, it's a really, really good one. Enjoy. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I discuss her new book titled High Heel with author Summer Brennan. Isn't that nice? I just read a really beautiful book titled High Heel. It's a book from a collection by Bloomsbury. And in this collection, a writer will explore a seemingly mundane object or an event or an idea. And Summer Brennan, who's an award-winning writer and journalist, she wrote about the high heel. And before I started reading her book, High Heel, I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, if you wear high heels, how much do you actually think about them beyond, you know, how they look or how they make your legs look? Or, you know, do they fit me or are they comfortable? But there's so much more to explore, as Summer Brennan reveals in this book. The first thing that I discovered when reading it was that this is a book that needed to be taken slowly. You know, I had to take my time and really digest each section of the book. You know, the book's been described as ferociously intelligent, and it really is. It's it's meditative and it's fun. And the book can be both these things at once because it's organized in these small sections, like these mini meditations. And each one explores the high heel with really smart analogies from mythology or fashion and literature. And with each meditation, I had to pause and consider, you know, how that story fit into my own life and my own relationship to being a woman and my presentation as a woman and what I decided to put on my feet for that presentation. Anyhow, I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Summer Brennan. First of all, that the book is is really, really beautifully written. Oh, thank you. I was hesitant to say this because I didn't want to come across as condescending, but it's so smart. It's such an intelligent book. Thank you. <laughs> right? No, I think that's totally fair, though, because I know what sort of assumption leads somebody to maybe want to remark about that because of, of the subject matter of the book. And I have or had those kinds of assumptions, too. So don't worry about it. No, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the way that you write about high heels, it's just the, the, the language is so elevated. You I mean, you make analogies to Greek mythology you know, with mm-hmm. Daphne and Apollo, and you make references to, you know, classic literature, thinking right. about your repeated references to the black patent leather heels from the bell jar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you explore the symbolism of high heels, but you elevate the conversation to something, like you said, it's typically trivialized. Like, I mean, was that intentional on your part? Um, I think part of what inspired me to do it was the thought that what if someone took a subject like this very seriously. And and I think it's actually a more serious issue in women's lives than is often given credit. Not just high heels, but just, you know, the things that we put on our bodies, the things we do to our bodies in order to be seen as beautiful or even just professional or appropriate for different situations. It's it's true that we tend to trivialize things that are considered feminine, especially if they're you know, beyond feminine into girly, you know, Um, and sort of the more so the less serious they're seen. But, you know, that's not the case of things that are 
um, you know, masculine or, or boyish. And so I just thought, well, I think there's actually a lot of really interesting um, intellectual depth to this subject. And so that was what I wanted to explore with my book. Yeah. You know, the thing is, is that I've taught myself to read quickly, right? I kind of have yeah. to because I you know, go through these books. So, But when I was reading this book, I, I could not read it quickly. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. You know, much like High Heels, the book and the way that it's written, it slows you down. Oh, wow. Right? Okay. Yeah. Because it's, it's so cerebral. Because each little <laughs> little essay, like each little meditation, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it leaves you with a question. It left me with a question, right? Or, you know, something to meditate on. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I mean, I've, I've actually heard that from a few people, which is, um, which is surprising. I've also heard the opposite in a sense that because it's the sections are short, it can, it can move quickly, um, because you're sort of constantly moving on to the next bit. But, but there are a few people, especially women readers have said that they've had to take it in pieces because, because of that. And I mean, it is, I think it is very distilled. I certainly had enough material to fit into a book twice its length. Um, and so maybe that's something to it. I mean, there's that, is it a Mark Twain quote or George Bernard Shaw or somebody that said they would have written a shorter letter if they'd had more time, you know? And, and so in some ways, this is the book that I took the time to write in a more shorter form. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the poem in the beginning is really beautiful. Did you actually write that? It starts with a woman runs to the forest chased by a god. Is that yours? Oh yeah. That's, that's just, yeah, that's mine. I mean, I guess you can see it as a poem, um, but that was just what sort of came to me for the start of the book. Um, so yeah, I guess it is kind of a poem, but that, yeah, that's just, that's me. So I guess, you know, one of the questions that, that lingered with me as I was reading through the book was, you know, how did we convince half of our population, the most vulnerable half to wear something every day that makes them even more vulnerable? How did we get to that place? Yeah. I mean, that's such, that's a very long answer, you know, to answer that question, but, um, it, it is a really interesting thing to consider. I mean, of course, I'm, you know, tempted to give you like an, a literal answer <laughs> to how that to how that actually happened. But of course, it's more complex than that. And, you know, high heels, I think in the last 50, I guess now we're getting on 70 years of the modern iteration of the high heel, like the tall stiletto heel with a thin heel and all that, you know, is different from what they used to be. And I think that there used to be a little bit less difference in terms of like the shape of a man's and a woman's shoe, especially in the 18th century. And for parts of the 19th, I think women's shoes for a long time have been built out of flimsier materials. So, you know, beginning of the 19th century, women were wearing flat shoes mostly, but they wore out very easily. They weren't necessarily as comfortable. They definitely weren't as sturdy. So there's always been, I think, some like inequality (laughs) with men's and women's footwear, which, as I say in the book, I think really is about the idea of what a man and a woman, and of course, this is working from, you know, a binary, which is not really real, but you know what I mean? Um, the, the ideas of what a man's supposed to do and what a woman's supposed to do in the world. Right. So, you know, it's interesting that you that you wrote the book in, in Paris, right? You know, yeah, the birthplace yeah. of the stiletto. And, you know, I have to tell you, I and I don't admit this very often publicly, sure. but I'm a Francophile and I've always been a Francophile. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know why that embarrasses me. I just, I just don't admit it very often. But, you know, at least once a year, you know, some magazine or some teen magazine comes out with a listicle about how American women can be more French. Oh, gosh. Right. Yes. <laughs> It's always, you know, how to how to dress like a French girl, how to wear makeup like a French girl, how to not wear makeup like a French girl, you know, date, all of it. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Right, but it's never anything practical or like pragmatic. Like, you know, to be more French, you should command that your government like mandate no. parental leave. 
<laughs> well, this is actually what I say. None of it's real anyway. I mean, listen, I'm definitely not an expert on being French. I'm not French, but just from the, you know, limited amounts of time I have spent there over the last decade, you you know, you you pick up an idea of what people actually do with their lives and these lists very rarely have anything to do with what what people might do. And exactly as you say, I, I actually wanted to write like a, a satire article that was like how to have universal health care like a French girl, because I think we also or like you know, how to parent like like the French. And these things are based on these larger systems and these, you know, infrastructure and health and support in ways that we don't have in America anyways. So, yes, it's a it's a funny phenomenon. But I love I mean, I love France, too. So I don't blame. You. OK, so this is now that you've said that, I don't know if my next question is, you know, has any value. But so from my impression, French women have a greater conviction <laughs> around their shoes. Is that true? Oh, I think it depends. I mean, you know, um, in terms of the conviction of like dedication to a certain kind of shoe or or what do you mean? Well, okay. So I'm, re- I'm remembering one listicle that I read. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and it said that, you know, French women, you know how American women, when you, when you go to a professional environment, you're in some setting and, you know, they have the sneakers on and their sneakers to, to work, but when they get there, they change into high heels. And, and, and I read that French women don't do that, right? Yeah. That, you know, is that true? Oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think that you definitely, I've never noticed like on the Metro in Paris, for example, a, you know, a woman in office attire who's wearing running shoes. Like, I do think that there might be more of an awareness of like the, you know, your style and public persona in that sense. But of course, you know, they wear whatever. I think high heels still are the footwear, um, like I say in the book, of a more formal workplace or a formal, you know, celebration or evening event, awards shows, parties, those kinds of things. But of course, you know, they wear all kinds of different shoes, just like here. Because they're human. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So going back to the trivialization of things that are that are feminine, you know, Mm -hmm. um, there's one story that I that I really loved in the book about a scientist. She considered herself to be a sensible person, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And part of that, you know, the image that she had of herself, you know, she thought that, you know, I guess, you know, wearing heels was trivial and, and she enjoyed the beginning of summer. And she enjoyed the beginning of summer because women started to wear heels again. You know, yeah. they were starting to get used to heels again, and which meant that they would they would fall down. And she enjoyed that because she thought that that, you know, they were stupid for wearing heels and that they deserved it, which you know, I didn't even know where to begin with that. That's so yeah, it's complicated. And I think um, I think, you know, a lot of people who might be listening to this or might read the book will have had that thought themselves or will have known someone that had that thought or has had that sentiment expressed towards them. I think it's pretty common, you know, even among women to have this idea because like, as we already said, they're not the most practical shoe. You know, people can argue that it's perfectly easy to walk in a reasonable, you know, quote unquote, reasonable pair of high heels that aren't like eight inches tall and all that kind of stuff. But there's this idea that to wear high heels, you're like capitulating to men or that you're doing it for the male gaze or that you're giving into some kind of harmful beauty standard. And there's certainly arguments that can be made for that. But then what's interesting is then this other side where there can be a kind of, I don't know if it's schadenfreude, but just a bit of a, a glee of like, see, you've been foolish and 
you kind of enjoying like making a superior choice in their eyes, I think. So yeah, so that's was I mean, that's not the only person I've known who's felt that way. But I remember finding it kind of striking. Yeah, I mean, I, when I was reading that, I, I kind of went through my head, the catalog in my head of people that I knew. And I definitely know people who do that, right? You know, they may not come out and say it, but you can see that there is kind of this pride in their choice not to participate in this part of our culture. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that can manifest in response to different sort of uh, expressions of, quote, female culture, whether it's makeup or certain kinds of clothing, you know, or shoes like high heels. I mean, you know, there's recently I've seen things like from, is it Alicia Keys that was, you know, doing a no makeup thing and that was like a hashtag. And I mean, the difference, of course, is that wearing makeup generally doesn't like hurt you. <laughs> I mean, I guess it depends on the makeup, you know, but mostly most makeup doesn't cause physical pain, but high heels can cause physical pain. So I do think it is kind of, it's similar to reactions to other types of feminine decoration, but it's also a bit different because of the physical aspect. Yeah, I guess the thing that I found bothersome was that, you know, the association that's being made is that, you know, something that's almost exclusively feminine, almost exclusively for women is being being associated with stupidity, right? Well, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yes. It's not just oh, that's a thing I don't want to do because, of course, women are rewarded for wearing them, penalized for not wearing them, and vice versa, depending on the setting. But you know, it's not as simple. It's rarely just about pleasing men either. I mean, it's a whole culture set up around our expectations of women and how women should look and dress that's enforced by all genders, I think, or at least by men and women. I don't know if I want to say that it's everyone's fault, but I think, you know, especially by people buying into gender binary, definitely enforce these ideas. And so it's not just, oh, I want men to think I'm cute, so I'm going to wear high heels. There's a whole other set of professional expectations and adhering to fashion trends and what that says about your intelligence, you know, especially if you might work in a creative field or, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. And, you know, um, I actually have a confession for you because okay. another thing, I'm admitting a lot of things. <laughs> Go for it. I, and I don't think I've ever said this out loud because I didn't think about it until I read your book. I don't wear high heels and I never yeah. have. Yeah. Right. And, and there's a there's a good reason for that. So so I'm tall, mm-hmm. which means I have you know larger feet, right? Oh, and yeah. you know I became tall really quickly. I think I was you know I was a teen, and you know so I reached my my highest height fairly early at the time where most women or young women or teenagers are learning mm-hmm. to walk in heels. You know generally taller people have larger feet. And my mother and I, you know, we had this ritual where we would go around to just find shoes that would fit me, you know, that were, you know, slightly beyond the standard size. You know, Mm -hmm. we'd find these little stores in our small town that had shoes for, you know, there was actually one called Tall Gals. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, so here's the thing. You probably already know this, that most of those shoes were flat, right? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because the assumption was, and I never thought about this, because the assumption was that if you have large feet, you're probably tall. And if you're a tall woman, you don't want to be taller. Right. Right. Well, because it's it's interesting. It's like it's all within these particular parameters. Like it's, I'm not sure what that ideal height is. Or, or you know, people look at fashion models in their high heels and think, oh, that's, isn't that supposed to be the ideal? But those women are like six three in their in their shoes a lot of the time and and you know i mean so if you've never worn high heels i mean i'm not crazy tall i'm five foot nine which is on the tall side but i don't know how tall you are but um you know people always think i'm taller than i am 
I think like, um, even if I'm wearing heels with just, just, you know, two inches or one inch of people always think I'm taller and make a comment on it. And so you end up drawing attention to yourself that doesn't always feel like very good attention. (laughs) Um, so, well, I say in the book that I think a lot of men especially sometimes feel sort of weirdly threatened by a tall woman. And that's the idea behind, well, why would a woman who's already very tall want high heels? Like what, well, that's what we'll just give her flat shoes. Right. You know, and it's interesting because like I said, you, you, you opened up this part of my mind that I kind of locked away and I didn't think about very much, but you know, yeah. since then, because I never learned, I never learned to walk in high heels and, and now, you know, you can find them in, you know, all sizes. And so I built this whole system of compensation around, you know, expectations of femininity. And so, you know, like I gravitate towards pointy flats because at a certain angle, they actually look like heels. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So anyway, that's my little system that I've set up. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, there's all these expectations about what women are supposed to look like and about what our feet are supposed to look like, particularly. It's it's an odd kind of focus for gendering the body in, in many ways. But like you mentioned, you know, that high heels make women more vulnerable, right? And I've been thinking about this a lot. In the book, I, I say that there are these researchers at a British university who did tests of, you know, women wearing different heights of high heels. And they decided that what the high heels did is they exaggerated a feminine walk and so they called it supernormal stimuli. But of course, for something to be supernormal stimuli, there has to be a normal stimuli that it's presenting a more exaggerated version of. Examples in nature are like, so when they were first discovering this phenomena among animals in the early 20th century, for example, there were these birds that would sit on um, eggs, their own eggs were light blue with gray spots. And the researchers found that if they gave the birds these like giant fake eggs that were bright, bright blue with big black spots, the birds were like, oh my God, these are great. And they would sit on these like fake eggs and ignore their real eggs. And there's lots of examples like that where, you know, male butterflies they found were attracted to the markings on the bodies of the female butterflies. They really didn't care about the wings at all. And so if they made these fake cardboard butterfly bodies, they didn't even need wings. The males would ignore receptive females and try to mate with like these cardboard cardboard things instead. Um, and so, so that's like the idea with supernormal stimuli. And so I was thinking, well, if high heels are supernormal stimuli, what what is it that they're mimicking? Because I don't know. This is an interesting sort of thought experiment to think like, do, quote, women or feminine people walk differently than masculine people? Like, really? And I don't know if that's really true. There's certainly like cultural ideas about the way a woman walks or is supposed to walk. But um, there's plenty of people that don't adhere to that. And so I wondered if the, the stimulus that was being exaggerated isn't so much like a feminine way of walking, but just the vulnerability itself and that that would be what supposedly males are finding more appealing anyway. Wow, no, that's fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, part of why I wanted to do this book is to just give a, a closer examination of these kinds of things. Like, you know, what is femininity and, you know, why are some people drawn to it either to have it themselves or to, you know, experience it in a romantic partner? Or is it culturally created or is it something that's arising organically? And what happens when it arises in people that, you know, culture says it shouldn't be arising in? And yeah. (laughs) 
So it's fun to be able to look into biology and science for this too. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. You've, you've got me thinking, I'm sure there's been research on, you know, whether women and men walk differently. I mean, it's odd because, so there is a whole history of this and I want to recommend a really great book. I'm sure many of your readers are familiar with the writer Rebecca Solnit and you know, she's of uh, Men Explain Things to Me fame and among other things. Uh, but she wrote a great book in 2000 called uh, Wanderlust, which is about walking. And there's great sections about uh, women and walking in that. And I referenced that book in my book, but it talks about these studies that people did about men walking versus women walking. And for a long time, there was this weird idea that women were like worse at walking than men, um, which kind of doesn't really make <laughs> really make sense. I mean, and, you know, some of the arguments were like, well, it's about our pelvises or it's about this. And like none of it really holds up. Um, and it's all based around this kind of like mid 20th century idea of like the man as provider who goes out into the world with a female that's like stationary at home, which was kind of relatively a new model of gender dynamics anyway, you know, because of course in the past women were much more likely to be participating in their, their husband's trade, whatever that is. Like if he was a butcher, she was a, a butcher or a butcher's assistant or, or whatever. And so, you know, it's this very post-industrial revolutionary idea of, you know, the man who goes off to procure nourishment and a woman who's at home. And so they were then reading like ancient people's lives on the basis of that. And so, so there is research about it, but a, a lot of the older stuff is pretty questionable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, shoes are fundamentally about mobility, right? Absolutely. And, you know, improving mobility. And, you know, thinking about how that's evolved from, you know, long, long ago when, when men and women were equally expected to benefit from the introduction of shoes and thinking like, you know, hunting and gathering right. in contrast to where we've evolved to now, you know, where feminine footwear has moved in the complete opposite direction, you know? Right, right. I mean, and, you know, and I think it's, it is, um, I mean, somebody should probably do like, this is definitely somebody's fascinating PhD on this kind of thing. But it is interesting to see the points in history when men's and women's shoe styles diverge and then come together again. I mean, like medieval shoes, men's and women's shoes were pretty much not different. I think there was, especially in the upper classes, there was difference between the materials that were used and, you know, queens were going to be wearing silk shoes and things like that. But there wasn't as much much difference. And, you know, these are maybe arbitrary examples, but then you look at um, like ancient Greece where women were sequestered and not really allowed in public unless they were prostitutes. And that's where you get the start of these kind of crazy tall platform shoes and, you know, shoes that aren't conducive for normal, comfortable walking out in the world. Yeah. You know, this is more of a comment than a question, but, you know, there's a story in your book about a comment made by designer Christian Louboutin. Yeah. Right. And he did an interview with a fashion photographer, Garon Storé, and she asked him, you know, why do men find high heels so attractive? And his answer was really interesting. You know, he said, you know, because they slow women down. You know, and I guess that was so that men could admire them. Yeah. And then he said this comment, like, you know, what, what's the hurry, basically? Like, just, you know, slow down so I can look at you. And I was, um, I was really struck by that. There was like a filmed sort of day in the life for her for a fashion week a few years ago. And, and it included this little interview in his apartment. And I w thought that was just really striking because he, this is a man designing some of the most sort of like luxurious status shoes that, that exist right now. And you'd think it would be about at least the way she walked, if not, you know, the look of the foot when it's flexed like that or pointed or what it does to the legs or how it changes the composition of your body when you're in these high heels or whatever. No, it's just that she has to walk, walk more slowly, which, um, 
I don't know. It's food for thought. And that's, I mean, things like that are part of what made me think of these, these ancient myths and these, these Greek myths, like I talk about, which many of them are about, you know, slowing women down or catching women or women that are physically running away from, from men or from gods. And um, so I saw some echoes there. Exactly. You know, like the Greek myth of Daphne and Apollo that you talk about in the book. And that's actually one of my favorite analogies in the book. Yeah. And, you know, and this is one of the great luxuries of being able to do work in Paris. If you want to be thinking about, you know, art history, at least Western art history, obviously, because there's so much of it everywhere. And so I got to see statues and be reminded of these myths. But the story of Daphne and Apollo, I guess Daphne's really a nymph, not so much a woman, but, you know, allow me my liberties there. But um, so she's very beautiful and she doesn't want to get married. She's not interested in sex with anyone or she just wants to be single. But the god Apollo becomes infatuated with her. I'm not going to say that he was in love with her because, you know, but um, so he wants to possess her. And so he starts chasing her through the forest, but she's really fast. And so she's running away from him. And he does this very kind of funny, I mean, I think to a modern reader, at least a modern feminist reader, he sounds very much like the nice guy, TM, you know, like, like, I'm so great. Why won't you go out with me? Like, you have no idea who I am. I'm such a nice guy and this whole thing. And she's just terrified and she runs away from him. So she wants to get away from him. And so she prays that she'll be changed so that she's not beautiful anymore because she knows that he won't pursue her if she's not beautiful. And so cruelly, sort of the reverse of her wish happens. And so she loses everything but her beauty. And how this is manifested in the story is that she becomes the laurel tree. And so she gets rooted to the soil. And so then she can't run anymore and he catches her. And um, I'd heard that myth, you know, as a kid, I think, but it wasn't until I thought about it more recently that I realized it's really kind of a horror story in many ways. You know, it's like those nightmares where you're trying to run for some reason and your feet, like you can't pick your feet up. They're too heavy. And so, yeah, so she turns into a tree and he's able to catch her and make out with the tree, basically. So, <laughs> so that's, that's the myth of Daphne and Apollo. But, you know, there's, there's so many stories like that that are about, you know, a woman trying to run away and the, the man or the male god that's that's after her and um so yeah so i thought about that when um when i heard the comment by louboutin uh, there's so many layers there i mean i had so many so many connections to like what's happening in, in modern times right like yeah. um when women reject men women are trying to reject or run away in a sense and not accepting that right and oh geez so much well, there right exactly i mean and i you know it's it's i um I felt like maybe I was a little naive. I mean, I knew there was bigger issues in this idea of this book because of course it's, it's, I mean, it's about shoes, but it's really about like women in public and women moving through the world in public. And, um, I was still a little bit surprised how dark this got in many ways. Um, even just looking at some of the most obvious like iconography of, of shoes and high heels, like with fairy tales, with the glass slippers of Cinderella, and you look back to the original fairy tales and they're pretty dark. I, it is interesting to look at these ideas that we have about women and women's movement in the world through through myth and through fairy tale and how those echo to, to how we see it today. And also about women trying to shrink themselves to make themselves less vulnerable, right? Or shrink their, their beauty or shrink the things that are good about them or that are big about them to avoid being chased through the forest. You know, maybe women who have long hair, they'll hide it when they're walking down the street to make themselves yeah. less attractive. That's what it reminds me of. Yeah. I mean, in the end, that kind of made her more vulnerable instead of less. But but with women and beauty or expressions of, you know, certain kind of feminine beauty, 
it's it's a it's always a double edged sword because it's like you know if you show up to like a gala event you know in like loafers and baggy jeans i mean i guess it depends on who you are obviously and like the who made your baggy jeans but you know what i mean like if you if you show up somewhere not sort of performing this type of femininity people feel like what do you you know come on it could be seen as showing disrespect it can, there's all these different ways that it can be interpreted negatively but then you know walking home from an event then if you get attacked you can be blamed for being too sexy so basically it's like you're too sexy or you're not sexy enough and it's like this sort of razor thin line between these two things that can change throughout the course of your day, depending on on what you're doing. Yeah. And then there's this punitive element too, right? Like if you think about Cinderella, that fairy tale, I heard this as a, as a child too, right? But, you know, yeah. when you think about it, her shoes are glass. So if she tried to escape, there'd be shards of glass, right? <laughs> like, right. Well, there's something about, there's something really interesting and precarious about the use of glass slippers in the story, you know, goes back to I guess the 18th century in, in France, the French telling of, of Cinderella is the version that we know best now. But as I mentioned in the book, um, you know, the Cinderella story exists across all kinds of different cultures all over the world. Um, and so the glass ones are the most recent ones. And I think it's interesting that that's the image that we find the most compelling for these like sort of maybe slightly dangerous shoes. I mean, the assumption is that they're not going to break because they're magic, <laughs> but but it is sort of like why glass? Why not crystal or diamond or something? You know what I mean? Like there's something interesting about the delicacy and maybe danger of the glass that somehow appeals to our subconscious on some level. Yeah. So you talk a lot about professional expectations, right? In your book, and you you worked in the UN, um, and and about how there is this expectation that you would you know present yourself in a certain way, and and high heels was I guess a part of that. But then you talk about the story about Samantha Power, who who I love. <laughs> right. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> and and how she would sprint around in, in sneakers, right? But yeah, and yeah. she still had confidence. I mean, what's the difference there? Can you explain that? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's, there's so it's it's complicated these things. And yeah, she. I think um, I've never seen her in high heels. Once I, I mean, I would see her around the building. We never interacted. Like you know, I didn't do anything particularly important at the UN. Although it was very interesting, and I got to see a lot of interesting people who are involved in international diplomacy. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm I'm trying to parse through why high heels would enhance one woman's you know perceived power and status, but not another. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, what is it about our individual visual presentation that inspires people to to project their expectations around our footwear and you know what that means about about us do you know what I mean exactly well also of course it, it, it is very subtle and I think you know there were studies done about this because the question of what should women look like in order to be in the workplace has been a very specific kind of interesting field of like study. I mentioned this book in my book uh, from the 70s, and they did these surveys basically trying to find out like, how can we take women seriously? Like we can't take women seriously, look at them. So we should change them so that we can take them seriously, which is kind of a ridiculous concept because instead of just taking women seriously, however they are or however they already dress, there was an idea that they had to be transformed for the workplace. And this was especially true like after the 19, 1950s, 1960s. And so they did all these surveys about you know women's appearance and what they needed in order to be seen as professional and competent by mostly by men, by by superiors and clients who were, you know, majority male at that time. And they found that what the women needed varied woman to woman because there was this kind of odd place of that they were, they were trusted more uh, and seen as more competent if they were in this sort of in-between space of feminine but not too feminine. And 
and, you know, presenting certain masculine things in their attire, but not totally. And this changed depending on what the woman looked like. So if she was like a tiny little petite woman, she could take a lot more like masculine accoutrements than maybe a taller, more broad shouldered woman. And, and it, it changed by race too, uh, which is like, not shouldn't be actually that surprising. Um, and so there's actually separate chapters in the book for white women and non-white women and the things that they should wear, like say if they're a lawyer or a businesswoman, because it invoked different reactions. And I think that, you know, people even now might relate to that feeling is what you have to do to telegraph this sort of like safe space of presenting as feminine, but also having, you know, not too feminine. It's it's the same old story again, but it's it's something that changes, I think, really quickly and doesn't get talked about as much, like the differences in how who you are influences what you need to do to be taken seriously. Yeah. So, you know, what's really interesting about that is that, you know, I, I spent most of my career in technology, mm-hmm. you know, which is, of course, male dominated. Oh, yeah. You know, I spent a lot of time around engineers and, you know, unlike working in the UN or in a bank or in, you know, real estate or politics, you know, although it is an office setting, there is more room and, you know, maybe even there's pressure for some women to assimilate, to assimilate to this very dressed down presentation. Do you know what I mean? You know, like sneakers and hoodies and, you know, that very kind of Mark Zuckerberg look. Right. And I talked about this earlier about, you know, how, although, you know, I'm not a fan of wearing high heels. I do have a very feminine presentation. You know, I love to wear dresses. I love skirts. Actually, I'm always in a dress or skirt. And, you know, in some ways that kind of made me an anomaly in that environment. Yeah. But then, of course, there's Sheryl Sandberg, Miss Lean In, right? Whatever you, you know, <laughs> regardless of what you think of her, um, who is often photographed in very high heels, you know, and has a very kind of old school. I mean, she's also you know, I guess she's Gen X, I don't know, but I mean, she's not a millennial woman. You know, it's it's a different generation than, you know, women in their 20s or early 30s right now, but she, she presented the more like traditional power dressing for women a little bit more. But yeah, it, it is different and it, it depends on, you know, your workplace and your field and, and all kinds of different things. Yeah. And it also, I mean, when you enter the realm of politics, it changes altogether because you have oh. this chapter about Hillary Clinton and her choice for shoes. And, and now we've got six women running, yeah. right? Yeah. And I just, I'm thinking about, you know, their choice for shoes, like how much thought and time is put into this, you know, presenting yourself as, you know, you can't be too sexy. You can't be too, too attractive because then, you know, people won't take you seriously. Right. Right. So, right. And, but also in the same, at the same time, people expect a certain level of grooming for women that they don't expect of men. And I think, you know, most, I think most of the women running for president right now, if not all of them wear makeup visibly in public. But I actually think it's already changing like three years later after 2016. Yeah. And the, the chapter you mentioned, I mean, it's this little, little sort of short, short pieces that are like a page or less than a page, but just so people don't think I wrote like, you know, 20 pages on Hillary Clinton's shoes. But um, <laughs> <laughs> although there's a time when I might've been able to do that, but um, no, I, I, I said in the book that, you know, she, she wore these kitten heels for the debates and I was, you know, in the process of researching and starting to write this book. And, and I thought a lot about them because I thought, well, if she did get elected to be president, the first female president, there's this company that always made the president's shoes for a long time or often made the president's shoes. And and I thought, oh, they'd be making 
would they be making kitten heels now or like, you know, what would happen? And but they seem like such a specific shoe for who she was in that moment and of trying to convey authority, but also be age appropriate, but be formal enough for the setting, but not seem not sensible. So yeah, I, I think it's it's already changing a little bit just because there's more women around. Like when you're the only woman in the room, so to speak, so much more attention is put on like every single detail. And I think we still see that a lot. It's like, you know, this woman is smiling too much and this woman is not smiling enough. I was on an article recently that said like Kamala Harris was, was like too relatable or something. Like she was like too empathetic. I think it was a political article. And, you know, it's just like, okay, because, you know, often if a woman is trying to be very or it is just being serious. It's too serious. It's not accessible enough. It's not warm enough. But then it turns out if you are warm, then somehow that's not professional. And so that's that double standard that you kind of run into whatever, you know, whatever you're doing. Yeah, I was just trying to think of the perfect outfit <laughs> for a presidential candidate. Like, what would it be? You know, would she be wearing an apron with a, you know, with, a bla- with a blazer? <laughs> well, I know. It's like all these different things. And, and I, I actually think just the presence of more than one woman you know, on that level does change it up because of course, like Kamala Harris dresses pretty differently than Elizabeth Warren. And part of that's, you know, probably due to their professional backgrounds, but they have very different, like, you know, ways of dress. And I think, you know, with male politicians, and I've said this before, I don't think I put it in the book, but there's a shorthand to the way they dress that sort of had been, at least up until now, sort of like understood, like, you know, First of all, they're always in a suit and tie most of the time, but then, you know, they can take the jacket off and just being in their shirt sleeves communicates a more like getting down to work mode or a more everyman kind of mode. And then there's the jacket off with the sleeves rolled up, you know, and so there's these different ways that they can, you know, with their clothing and how they style their clothing can communicate certain like modes, um, especially modes of accessibility to to audiences that women, that female politicians and, you know, so far we don't have any non-binary people running for president. Um, so I'm saying men and women. Um, actually, maybe they are and I don't know. So if someone hears this and and this gets into it, like, you know, please let me know. But to my knowledge, I don't know that there's any official candidates that are non-binary. But anyway, they don't have the same shorthand, but they kind of can communicate it in different ways. And so I think it is changing in our, the just the more we see women in these positions of power or potential power, the less scary it is on some level and, and the more used to it people get. Yeah. I was going to ask about the, the sex, but I won't do that because oh, you can, you can ask about sex. That's fine. <laughs> well, I, I don't really know what to ask except, you yeah. know, shoes or, you know, I don't know, there's this link to issues in in pornography and I don't really know when that happened or how that started or yeah yeah I mean there's definitely like multiple dissertation length answers that people could and I'm sure have given about the link between shoes and pornography and shoes and sex I mean one of the practical reasons that shoes were in pornography in the beginning I mean um the only real research into historical pornography that I've done was in Paris in the 1850s, 1860s. And there's sort of, you know, the joke is that as soon as they invented, you know, kind of easy photography, the guy just sort of went, wait, I know what would be really good to take pictures <laughs> of. And, you know, just like ran down the street looking for, you know, the closest sex workers to pull into his studio to, to take pictures of. I mean, whether that's like really what happened, I don't know. But it it, it kind of almost happened like that because pretty much as soon as there was widespread photography, there was widespread photographic pornography in Paris anyways. And yeah, and there's, you know, these images are in the archives and this isn't like the Victorian sort of demure stuff that people see more often. Like it's pretty, it's pretty hardcore um, that they, what they were doing and the women were always wearing shoes. And some of the theories about why that was, was because it marked them as regular women 
as opposed to like an art photo. I mean, also a lot of these pictures is pretty obvious. They weren't art photos. Like they were doing things that you're not going to find in like a Leonardo painting, (laughs) you know, but obviously, I mean, but it has been argued that the presence of the shoes in these pictures of naked women, you some of them extremely graphic and others just, you know, naked ladies. It, It meant that they were real women, modern women, you know, and in a sense, women of the streets because they've got their shoes on to be in the street. I mean, there's some kind of weird logic to that of, you know, the, the, the shoes being for your public life and prostitutes being thought of as public women, you know, for public consumption on some level. So, yeah, so they've been around pretty much since then. <laughs> and and shoe fetishes are almost always, of course, there's exceptions. I'm sure there's people that like just love their vans and have a whole thing about it. But, you know, f- like fetish shoes are almost always either high heels or military shoes, which are like very extremely gendered shoes. Military shoes? What, yeah. what have I been missing? <laughs> well, I mean, if you like, um, I'm not an expert on like fetish footwear, but I mean, the most common thing you think about, of course, you know, and the, the face of, of pornography so often or the face or what have you are, are the women, right? Um, most of the time. But fetish shoes are, are often high heels worn by different genders, but mostly women, but also like um, like combat boots or, or military shoes or, I mean, you know, it's like the... Um, I think it's this the fetishization of uber masculine kind of soldier soldier image and I think it's it's less common for the shoe itself to be objectified but if you're talking about like shoes that show up in like fetish fetish stuff or fetish art I think those are the most common ones so yeah Okay. Well, in in closing, I I, I wish that we would spend more time talking about the fact that you know, high heels hurt. They hurt. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they do. I mean, it's it's an odd space to be in this because I'm not really for high heels and I'm not really against them either. Um, I have to admit, I don't wear them as much since writing this book. I've asked myself whether that is because, you know, there's sort of three factors that could be causing that. One is I don't live, I don't have the same life that I had four years ago when I first conceived of this book or six, three three, four years ago, whatever it was. I'm not living in Manhattan most of the time. I don't work in that kind of setting anymore. And, you know, so you, I mean, you dress for your life and I'm more likely to be in like pajamas. <laughs> I mean, I'm a writer, right? So, you know, or jeans or, or yoga pants or whatever. And I have less reason to wear high heels. Another reason is that, you know, I'm I'm in my late 30s and uh, my body hurts more <laughs> than when I was in my 20s. And I think there actually just is something to that. And, you know, you get maybe some free years of wearing high heels that aren't as painful. And I mean, if, if there's anyone listening that has worn them for years, they might relate, you know, that it can get more painful over time. And then the other thing, of course, is, you know, if writing this book and thinking about what they mean and about sort of like what's been called the consensual martyrdom of women and these painful things we decide are okay, um, if that has influenced it. And um, and I'm not really sure, uh, but I don't wear them that much anymore. Wow. I do still like high heels and I, I do wear shoes with heels on them but they don't seem quite as innocent to me as they did maybe, you know, 10 years ago, I think. Yeah. Well, Summer, I am going to read your book again. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to read it again very slowly because I really enjoyed it. It is very, it's poetic, like I said, and it, and it, I don't know, it makes you think and it slows down your thinking and makes you contemplate all of these parts of your life. And so I, I, it's really beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for joining me. And um, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. And please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And please also follow The Electorate on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And that's at Electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight. <laughs>